Welcome to the Let Christie Take It podcast. Let Christie Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by Damon Minchella. Damon was the bass player for Ocean Colour Scene for 14 years. The band were one of the biggest of the Britpop era and sold millions of records, scoring five top 10 albums and 15 top 20 singles. When Damon departed from Ocean Colour Scene, he would go on to play in Paul Weller's band for a four to 12 years, racking up equally impressive chart stats and playing live across the world. Damon's reputation of one of the UK's in-demand and talented bassists saw him playing live or in the studio with greats such as Paul McCartney, The Who, Jimmy Page, Dr John, Paolo Nettini, Amy Winehouse, Richard Ashcroft and Oasis. Not happy with being a top musician, Damon was course leader of the BA Popular Music degree at the University of South Wales. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you Damon Minchella. If you enjoy our episodes, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Damon Mancello, welcome to Let Christy Take a Podcast. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. We're delighted you come on. So we go right back, not that far back. What was life like for a young Damon Mancello growing up in Merseyside? That was amazing. I mean, apart from, you know, obvious things like, you know, the, the incredible drought of 76 and, you know, everything being in black and white. <laughs> you know, it was incredible because, you know, it was... Oh, it was pre-internet, so there was free time was free time. You yeah. didn't feel pressure to do anything apart from do what you wanted to do, which was play football with your mates. Yeah, yeah. And then a little bit later, girls appeared on the horizon and take football a bit more seriously. I'm sorry, take music a bit more seriously. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, no, it was amazing, and you know, I had a great, great upbringing with my mum and dad and my sister because they're all class. Um, yeah, fab. Grand. I used to go down to the beach at Ainsdale once, um, once once a month for like a little family trip out, take the dog on the beach. It was, if I can swear, it was fucking awesome. <laughs> you can say whatever you want on this show. <laughs> and was your, what got you started in the music industry? So obviously you were a wannabe footballer and a, a bit of a ladies man. <laughs> what got you started in the music? <laughs> or wannabe ladies man and a bit of a footballer. <laughs> um... Well, oh God, what? Well, I mean, the reason why I started playing guitar was because I smashed my leg to pieces when I was playing football, like a serious leg break. I was in goal, uh, training match, didn't have any shin pads on. New kid had been brought into the club, you know, um, sent forward position. He, he had his studs on for some reason in a training match. I had no shin pads. He went to go around me, stuck my leg out, snapped my leg in half. But like, this is pre sort of. Um, you know, synthetic um, cast. So it was like, a, you know, proper plaster cast from my toes up to my nuts for six months. I literally, I mean, it was it was horrendous, proper, like, you know, pinned leg and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
and that was just when we were moving from Merseyside up to the Midlands and a mate of mine gave me a bass guitar which he'd been given didn't want it and um the first three months of being up in the Midlands I think I couldn't go to school because I couldn't get around so I used to just sit in my bedroom thinking how do I get this thing to work so I just started playing along to records the first song I ever played along to was Red House by Jimi Hendrix which I didn't know had no bass on it <laughs> so it was cool because I started playing these low notes and I was like oh my god I'm a genius <laughs> <laughs> literally no concept that they're probably out of time definitely the wrong notes it's and brilliant. then you find the occasional right note um and then I was the new kid at school with what you know with the scouse accent they're all brummies and then the, the hard kids at school come up to me you know, like first break time like what you fucking hell are you and i start talking back and they were like wow you're cool because you've got a scouse accent do you play the guitar and i said well actually i'm really good at the bass which is bullshit because i could literally only play red house badly which has no bass line <laughs> so that was the start of it and that was the bug and then i caught it and uh, was that anybody else in your family damon musically inclined uh, no. Apart from the fact that my mum went to school with George Harrison. So she's socially inclined with musicians, but definitely not musically inclined. Uh, my dad, absolutely no chance. And my sister was horrendous at the recorder. Same so, an Ocean Colour scene yes. got together in 89. How did the band get together? I, I, I read something before that there was a mixture of two bands and you were all at a, at a Chardon's gig or... No, that's Sharon's gig. Roses gig? Yeah. Stone Roses, yeah. Well, me and Simon were in a band before Ocean Colour Scene called The Fanatics. Um, and we were basically the Velvet Underground. We mixed with a bit of the Stooges. And then through a friend of a friend of a friend, we got introduced to Oscar. So we got him in. And the guitarist who uh, wasn't really into it. And, and then Steve Crowley was in another band. And si I didn't like Steve because we went to rival schools um, and we didn't get on at all. And the band he was in, I thought, were fucking appalling, like some B-Tech rip-off of the jam. But Simon had already organised that he was going to be the new guitarist for our band, but didn't tell me. And then me and Steve ended up having a pint at uh, um, the Stone Roses gig in Birmingham. And it was like, oh, why, why don't we have a jam tomorrow? And going back to Hendrix, I'm a massive Hendrix fan. So Simon has said to Steve, learn two Hendrix songs, turn your amp up full, and that'll blow Damon away. And then you can join the band or we'll start a new band. And that's basically what happened. Can you tell us a little bit about the band getting signed for the first time and, and the kind of the first album? Ha! <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, literally we'd done about six gigs. Uh, and we were I mean, we I suppose we were kind of cool because Simon was a good singer and we had some good good ideas for about four songs and then we're working on some half-assed ideas for about another eight songs but we did a gig in manchester and a guy called bob stanley <coughs> excuse me used to work for the melody maker and then went on to form saint etienne came to this gig in manchester and we were going to pull it because there was we sold about 10 tickets but we played it anyway and he did a review which is out in the nm the melody maker the next week saying Ocean Colour Scene are the band the Beatles should have been, the Stone Roses want to be, and the Lars nearly were. Wow. You lunatic. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, this is, this is pre-podcast. Talk about, talk about foresight. 
<laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> or maybe oversight. <laughs> uh, and because, and then because of that um, review that Bob Stanley did, uh, we, had, we were signed to a tiny little label already. They were just getting ridiculous offers. Um, and then the biggest offer came in from Fontana, which is part of Polydor, uh, for a stupid amount of money to buy the label because the only way they could we didn't know in the contract we'd sign with this little label that the only way we could be signed by someone else is if the label got bought out so the label got bought out for 900 grand and it and me simon steve and oscar got four grand between us <laughs> yeah that was my first interaction with the proper music business which was basically being absolutely shafted uh, and then before we knew it we were in with Jimmy Miller, who produced Exile on Main Street, and Steve Osborne, who'd done all the engineering on Scream and in these ridiculous studios. We'd ever been in demo studios and these massive studios in London making this record. And we gave the reins to everybody because we were, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. And then three, and then three producers and three album versions of the albums later, we were like, "This is just this record is shit." Because we, but through that experience, we learned how to play how to write songs, how to actually make proper decisions. And we just thought we need to get off this label. So we, uh, we engineered a way that they had to drop us. Um, it, it wasn't too long after that, that you, you guys ended up supporting Paul Weller. That's right. Yeah. Look, looking back, how important is Weller in the history of the early ocean color scene? Well, he was, a, that was like, again, going back to the sort of um, the foresight of the whole thing at the time we were like oh we're just doing a couple of gigs with you know paul weller that's cool particularly for steve craddock who was like you know still to this day you know i'm sure he, his bedroom is covered in, in paul weller pictures still but um at the time it was like well this is cool but obviously what that then led to was steve getting the call to go and play on wildwood um and then <clears throat> paul coming to play on a few tracks on Mosey Shoals and Paul asking me to go and play bass with him. So with me and Steve going away touring Wildwood and then both of us Stanley Road, we were able to bring in some money and some experience as well of like how to play better live, how to write better songs, how to make things sound better when we started recording Mosey Shoals. So yeah, I mean, it was a massive influence. And Paul, his musical knowledge I mean, I, I couldn't, I don't know what, you know, I couldn't, I haven't seen him since 2007, but his musical knowledge in those early days was incredible. It was, you know, it was like a really good musical education, yeah. but also a musical education in, in um, not to be such a musical fascist as well. Because <laughs> yeah. he's very much not shit because they've got beards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, their trousers are awful. You can't listen to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So on one hand, it was amazing. But you also learned, well, actually, you can be a little bit more open-minded. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the 95 tour uh, supporting Oasis got Ocean Colours seeing a lot of national uh, exposure. Could you feel that something big was brewing? We really recognised it when we did uh, Nebworth, which is really stupid because we'd all... Davy Cook Train hadn't come out yet. I don't think the album had actually come out. But we'd already had a top 15 and a number seven. But it was walking out in Nebworth, playing Day We Caught the Train, and every single person there sang along to it. So it was almost like we weren't the support band anymore. And that's when we really thought, well, fuck me. Yeah. You know, we really have arrived. And then straight off that, we did the Mosley Shoals tour, um, which started at a tiny little place in Preston. 
And then the entire tour was sold out. So medium-sized venues and then more venues were added at the end, bigger venues and blah, blah, blah. And then we start, Then we, we, we lost the imposter syndrome, which every, every single band on the planet does. Every band I've ever spoke to has got, who's got anywhere. It was like early doors were like, how the fuck did we get here? Yeah. You know, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Who and blah, blah, blah were like that. Yeah. We're not, yeah. we're not as good as Elvis. What are we doing here? You know, the usual sort of thing. Yeah, you have these people up here and you think, I'll never achieve that. And then when yeah. you get there, like, who's going to cop on while you were here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> start talking to you in those terms and you're like, you weirdos, what's the matter with you? Bands often struggle with the second album, but this was definitely not the case with Ocean Colors saying that the outstanding Mosley shows. What was the success of that like? Uh, well, on many levels, I mean, it was surprising, but we were so stubborn and pig-headed because, as I said, you know, we engineered a position to leave a major label to, to get dropped, which no band ever does. Because hmm. if you get dropped by a major label, your career's over. But we were like, we've got to do it our way. And uh, we weren't allowed to gig for a year and a half due to sort of um, ongoing legal issues with um, <clears throat> Polydor. So in that year and a half, before we got the Moji Scholl studio, we were in a tiny, 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 tiny little studio writing shitloads of songs. And that was the, that was the sort of genesis of Moji Scholl's. And then we took it into a slightly bigger shithole to actually make the record, which I engineered all of it because we couldn't afford an engineer. So when making this record for ourselves, the first one we made, because the first album wasn't for ourselves. We were just doing, been doing as we were told. And then we started making this record for ourselves. And then people we re really looked up to, like Paul Weller and Brendan Lynch's producer. And then Noel Gallagher would hear the demos. And Andy McDonald, who signed the Lars and Portishead and all that, were going, your demos are fucking amazing. And we were like, oh, shit, maybe we are really good. So it was that vindication of being told what to do, realising it was wrong, doing it yourselves against all odds and then all of a sudden you put out a song called riverboat and we chose it because we thought this will never be a hit so the record label will have no expectations and then it's like it's gone in the top 20. yeah and chris evans is using it on the chris evans is using it on his breakfast show yeah, yeah. and you were yeah. everywhere but then being you know depressive as we were then and you with this imposter syndrome when it came time for the second single to come out you've got it bad you're like oh no we're going to be a one-hit wonder oh no it's going to be awful and that goes in the charts at number seven then the album is in the charts at number two so yeah it felt fucking great it's still it's a great album great album still a great sound to listen to it now and yeah, really yeah, capture yeah. like when you first hear it you think is this of a TV show from the 60s or something? You, know, you hear it, it's amazing, amazing. Was there any resistance to you engineering the album? Did you just take it on or was it kind of trying your lap? Oh, no, I mean, Steve did a tiny bit, but he was better at playing guitar and I, I'm far more better at being organised. We literally couldn't afford to have an engineer. We'd, we'd had enough money together to pay the rent for this this slightly less of a shithole called which we then named Marjorie Shelves. 
But, so someone had to learn how to do it, to get all our ideas onto tape. Um, and so, no, there wasn't any resistance. It was everyone, everyone else, including me, was like, oh, you're quite good at that. Let's carry on. Um, the one thing we couldn't do was mix it. I could never work out the mixing pro, um, process. So Brendan Lynch and Max Hayes had done Stanley Road and Wildwood as well. They were like, oh, we'll come and mix it for free because we couldn't afford to pay them. Yeah, yeah we, had, we literally had no money because we didn't have a record deal. And then we started saying, our manager started to, you know, with Paul Weller saying, oh, they're fucking ace in the press and Noel Gallagher saying they're going to be huge. Then labels start to take interest or notice. And our manager would then go around record labels with like a couple of tracks and people were like, is this the same ocean colour scene that got dropped by phone and Polydor? What? But when we when we signed to MCA, their A and R guy, who's a lovely fella, he said, "We're gonna we're gonna offer you a record deal because we love what you're doing, uh, but you've got to change your name because the name Ocean Colour Scene is dead." And we said, as a collective, "Okay, we'll change our name if you show us by deed poll that you have changed your name first. <laughs> and he was like, "Okay, I love your attitude. Let's just fucking do it." Right. Yeah. <laughs> Damon, Britpop ruled the 90s, right? I mean, the UK and Ireland were just engrossed in all of the bands of that era. Mm-hmm. And it'd be fair to say the Ocean Colour scene were leading the charge, or at least definitely up there with, with, mm-hmm. with the top guys. Other than the obvious, was there much rivalry between the bands of that era? No, not at all. Because, I mean, you know, being candid, you have the he- heavy hitters like Us, Verve, Blur, who manufactured competition with everyone and obviously yeah. Oasis everyone else were, were, were second or third tier you know yeah. Shed 7 and or whoever you know they were like you're just without being rude but it's obvious you're just here because where we've opened the doors you know you had the Beatles Stones the Who the Kinks and then you'd have Herman's Hermits and whatever yeah. so we were just like well you're not competition you're nice people you know you'd have a pint with them but the only competition was the manufactured shit from blur and their record label you know and it's i mean it was in it was in some book somewhere where i'm in a hotel chatting to liam and what was it be here now had been number one then marching already had been number one and the urban hymns is about to come out and i'm saying to liam this is amazing not that we're going to get knocked off the number two slot and you're going to get knocked off the number one slot because Richard Ashcroft and his mates are about to go at number one. It felt like, because we were all friends, this this is incredible. It's like we have taken over. Mm-hmm. That is brilliant. Which we, which we, you know, for three or four years it was, you know. You, yeah. you, you talk about just standing there casually with Liam talking about this. Uh-huh. I mean, looking back from that that time period, is there any, what, what would be your standout memory or can you tell us even? <laughs> oh, God. Well, the thing is, it's like, it was just day to day. And obviously, the people you're talking about, people listening or people, you know, if you if you, if you, if you read it somewhere, oh, I was just standing next to Liam, we were just chatting shit about, you know, the verve, blah, blah, blah. People go, oh, my God, these are my heroes. But these were just mates who happened to be doing the same thing. And in, we were still thinking we're getting away with it, you know. So hindsight is like oh my god isn't that incredible you know all these you know these like you know famous musicians and all that but we would just just hang out i mean i remember going to the pub with liam for no reason whatsoever one person recognized me and came over to talk 
Liam had his back to them. Then Liam turns around. They they literally screamed and ran out. <laughs> Before you know it, the pub is rammed with, I would say, 90% Oasis fans, 10% Ocean Coasting fans, and me and Liam literally could not get out of the pub, which was fine, to be fair, because we were going to stay for a bit anyway. So it's that kind of weird thing where you kind of forget how other people perceive it. But I would say the most ridiculous moment was sitting on the top of a tour bus with Liam and he's only wearing a Union Jack while we're going down a motorway <laughs> in somewhere in Scandinavia, which is not only ridiculous, but also dangerous. <laughs> You mentioned about uh, Martin already not going to be here now, which at the time, Be Here Now was just a savagely huge, successful album. Yeah. And Martin already came across. Now, you're both at number one, number two, the Verve are coming in. I mean, I can only imagine, but looking back, how much fucking fun was that time period for you guys? You know, you, you mentioned talking about your heroes. I mean, me and Kieran have both seen you with the band a few good few times right back and, and i know you're gone out of a long time but it must have been just brilliant oh god yeah <laughs> i mean you've got everything you could ever want as you know as someone who was like became an aspiring musician and so did all your mates and then you form a band and then you've got this long torturous route to get there then suddenly you're there and then people see you in a different light but music was always at the center at that stage so people would be you know screaming and fainting and you want autographs and you're selling out huge arenas and you're earning an absolute fortune but at the core of it all is still the thing which is the drive of the music which you still had you know when you first fell in love with music so that never left for some of us some people kind of got caught up in the trappings of fame too much and then forgot why they're there which it happens with it happens with footballers 24 7 you know yeah. like ronaldo and throwing out his toys because you know he hasn't been selected and it's like well yeah but the ronaldo who played for sport in lisbon would have accepted that i would have trained a bit harder yeah. you know but uh yeah it was incredible it was incredible i don't remember quite a lot of the details for obvious reasons but i also remember bizarre things like literally what every dressing room looked like of every gig I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, I know. But after the gig, would you remember? No, hopefully not. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Damien, you mentioned supporting Oasis, that massive network gig. Ooh. Looking back, you're in the eye of the storm of Britpop. Were you aware of how important the movement was and how it would become? Well, for us lot, 
who were, as you said, in the eye of the storm of it. We thought it was it it was just a journalistic invention. You know, I think John Robb takes um, I'm going to say takes criticism for it. He probably does takes um, credit for it. But an, I think another journalist called John Harris, if if I could be right, coined the term Britpop when he reviewed a Blur single. So I'm forgetting what's what the name of the song was in uh, as back as 1992. And that then became a moniker that everyone stuck on it, sometimes positively, sometimes really like derogatively and negatively. And then it exploded. And then you've got, you know, Tony Blair being the Britpop prime minister and Ben and Jerry's doing Britpop ice cream and the Spice Girls being Brit girl band and all that. Yeah, yeah. Then you're thinking, this is bullshit. But the heart of it is just a handful of bands making seriously good music. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was cool to be part of it, yeah. But it's also also you're thinking this is a bit silly, yeah. Because <laughs> we're not the Beatles, because that's always in the back of your mind as well. You know, Beatlemania, I can understand it. Yeah, but yeah. you know, none and, of us as good as the Beatles, so you know. That's it's a high bar, Damon. Well, yes, very high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking back at these massive crowds at Edwards, you've played massive gigs with the likes of the Who, Weller, Richard Ashcroft, just to name a few. Do you prefer the larger gigs or the more intimate? I would be a liar if I said, oh, no, the intimate ones are much better because, you know, you can really interact with industry people. No, the bigger, the better. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, do you want to play away, away at Hartlepool on a Tuesday <laughs> night in yeah. FA Cup or do you want to play in the World Cup final in, the, you know, at San Siro? Duh. Yeah, yeah. But that said, all gigs, if you've got the right attitude, are super important. You know, and that's I've always maintained that as well because people, whatever the size, however many people are there, they want to have the the night of their lives that blows their mind. Like my mind was blown when I saw Echo and the Burning Man in 1984 at Birmingham Odeon on the Ocean Rain Tour, yeah. which changed my life. Yeah, absolutely. And they would probably speak about that gig the way you're speaking about your yeah. gig. So it's mad when you're when you're when you're in it, you don't appreciate the effect you're having on the people out there. Exactly. We actually had Will Sargent on uh, when he was oh, promoting uh, Bunnyman. His, yeah. his book. What a book. What a book. I'm going to ask you, Damon, you spoke about football. What was it like to record with the Spice Girls for England's World Cup song? Well, what it was like is I refused to do it. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> because I, um, well, because my background is, I would say English, but I say Scouse and Italian. So I have no interest in England as a football team. Brilliant. That's the answer I want to hear. Yeah, even though Ian McCulloch wrote the song, and, I, and I, you know, I love Ian to cert a certain degree, there's no fucking way on God's earth I would sing a football song for England, even if it was with a, re a re reincarnated John Lennon. <clears throat> you know, let alone Tommy from Spice. Tommy from Space and the fucking Spice Girls. Um, and the rest of the band felt the same, even though Steve and Oscar are mad, are mad like England fans. They, we, and it ended up just being Simon doing it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was like, fuck that shit. I'm and it's, you know what, Damon? I brought my kids there a few weeks ago to Anfield just for uh, to tour of the museum. We flew in, flew out on the same day. And the guy was showing us all the flags. You know, this is the flag from Europe. And he goes, what you won't see here is a Union Jack. He says, we're Scouts. We're not British. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so you also played with Paul McCartney on the Help album. Was that mm. a dream come true if we woke up Sir Paul? Oh, it was so fun. You know, it was such a funny day. Just alluding back to what I said when my mum went to school with George Harrison. Um, I'll get, it's a long story, but I'll do it super quick. When they were still the Silver Beatles, 
they were going on their second tour of um, Germany and they bought a van, but none of them could drive. <clears throat> so George asks my mum, who's going out with my future dad, who has a driving license, will you ask your fella Dave to come to Germany with us? Because he's got a fucking driver's license. He could be our tour manager. So my dad goes to his dad, my future granddad, can I do this? Can you imagine what my granddad's reply was? Burning behind my dad was doing an accountancy um, degree and no one knew who the Silver Beatles were. Well, it was a full of a, a lot of Italian expletives and basically the answer was no. So they eventually found a guy called Neil Aspinall. And yeah, you nodding, you know the name until he died 12 years ago. He ran Apple Records, was still Paul McCartney's manager. So when I'm at, we're at Abbey Road to do the Help album with McCartney, everyone's like, oh, Paul McCartney's on his way in. Number one, this is the first time I've seen Paul Weller literally freeze in his tracks and turn as pale as a ghost with sheer fear and kiddish excitement. And then number two, they're on their way. They're on their way. So I got into the corridor outside the studio. The first person that walks towards me is Neil Aspinall, who I recognise. And I went up to him and said, you've got my dad's job. <laughs> and he was like, what, what, what? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, mate. And I just walk off, just leave him in total that... confusion. <laughs> and then Paul McCartney comes in and was all, hey, how are you doing? Great, fantastic. You guys, you play all the old guitars, brilliant. Oh, it's lovely to be back here. It's like my second home. Marvellous. Uh, Linda was there and she was lovely. But my final moment of it, well, actually there's two. My third, my, my third recall of it. So I'm sitting there playing the bass to come together, standing next to Paul McCartney, and I've got a pair of chords on. And I play this lovely little chord, at bass chord at the end to finish it off, which isn't on his version. And he went, hey, nice chord, mate. And I said, yeah, they're boot cuts. <laughs> And then the very, very final moment is he'd also written the B-side that day, McCartney. And there was like an hour left of studio time. And he said to me and Steve White, hey, let's go back into the um, into the live room. Maybe we could jam out this tune. I've got written this great tune. It could be the B-side. Fuck me. It was horrendous. What's it? It's literally one of the worst songs I've ever heard. But because of that, just me, Steve White and Paul McCartney, just the three of us for an hour jammed through this god awful tune. But I was just thinking, I'm having a jam with the the, the grand uh, the, the the future godfather of, of my two children, Steve White, yeah. and Sir Paul fucking McCartney. <laughs> That's great. Well, you you, you look at some of the footage of him just jamming out a song on yeah. uh, what's that? Get back, get back, uh -huh. and it's it's just strumming on the bass guitar, and it ends up being fucking classics. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Damien. This bass side was more the frog chorus, was it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah don't knock the frog chorus. He wasn't even that good. Oh, shit. <laughs> Damon, I have to tell you, uh, long, long, you're actually, you're solely, well, almost solely responsible for the reason why I don't go up in the front of gigs anymore. Uh, <laughs> we were at a, an ocean colour scene gig in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, real early 2000s. And uh, we got into the pit in the uh -huh. Olympia Theatre. Yeah, oh, yeah. And every time, whatever way we moved, I ended up kind of moving in front of this big speaker. And every time you were going down on one knee, and every time you hit the the bass, yeah, honestly, yeah. my vision just wobbled, <laughs> and I couldn't hear for a week. For yeah. honestly, for a week, and I had tinnitus. Then I couldn't hear anything for about a week, and I had tinnitus for about two months afterwards. And it was the last time I ever went. And I, I, I was, you see people at concerts, you'd look back at them sitting on chairs, like it's sacrilege. Yeah, now yeah, I'm yeah. that guy, I sit back and... It's <laughs> yeah. all your fault, Damon. Yeah, that's a true story, honestly. Yeah, sorry about that. Well, <laughs> amazingly, my, I've got 100% perfect hearing. 
which I've no idea because I'd still I still make that much racket even yeah. now. property is everything you see we don't mind your prying eyes we don't mind all your lies You left Ocean Colour Scene in yes. 2003. Actually, during, might even have been that era, right? Um, been, yeah. What what prompted the split? <laughs> we, ha- we have to ask. I, I, I know you've talked about this before, so yes. I don't feel as, as guilty or as bad. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think when I spoke, I mean, I hadn't, I've never spoken about it until very, very recently. And so I could safely say that the reunion's off. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, there's, there's a whole sort of build-up to it, but what, I'll, and I'll get into that in a second, but I would say, could you imagine if you worked with three other blokes for 15 years? So you say you go to the same factory with them, so you work like eight till six, doing whatever in the factory, and then instead of maybe going for a pint but still going home, you leave the factory and they come home with you. You stay in the same house, and when it's a day off, you hang out together. When it's time to go on holiday, you hang out together. You are literally with these same three people in this highly pressurized environment for 15 years. After about nine years, the way they open their crisp packets really starts to get on your fucking nerve. Okay. So you amplify that with loads of other people being involved, expecting the four of you to deliver loads of great stuff that's better than the last stuff you've done, but slightly different. And then a couple of them aren't quite pulling their weight. The two that aren't pulling their weight, the way they open their crisp packets becomes the worst thing in your life. Okay. And then you throw into the fact that one of the people who's really bad at opening crisp packets <laughs> has already knocked you out once in an argument and then does it again and you just go, I can't eat those crisps anymore. Mm-hmm. It just got to the point where I, I'd quite seriously been thinking of leaving and I, I was not even going, maybe going to make one more album, maybe not. I was probably just going to finish off all the touring commitments for North Atlantic Drift because I hadn't really enjoyed the last two albums as much as I had previously. The sort of attitude of everyone in the band, apart from me and Steve, had kind of gone off the boil and it was more about everything else we can do around music, around being in the band, apart from what, why those things exist because we are in the band. So, and then when that moment happened in, in Ireland, when I, I just had an argument with the drummer and it, instead of him speaking back to me, he just knocked my tooth out. I thought that, that once is, to, is, is not right, twice, fuck off. So yeah. I literally just got off the tour bus and left the band. And, but ultimately you went on to continue, well, working with Steve, with, um, with Weller. With Weller. Yeah. Was there any anxiousness after that fact or a trepidation or, you know? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've just been in a band for, as you said, for 19, 15 years with guys, yeah. and now you said, fuck off, and they'll... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was really weird. I mean, it was literally about six weeks later, so me and Steve are rehearsing with Weller for whatever we were doing with Weller. And I would normally... The stage set up with Weller, it was me and Steve, kind of next to each other, 
stage uh, right and Weller on stage left. I turn up to the rehearsal space. Me and Steve were on opposite sides with Weller in the middle, which it had never been. And then Craddock comes in and I just went up to him and said, do you want a cup of tea? And he was like, uh, okay. So I made him a cup of tea and we, we hugged each other and we said, look, this has got nothing to do with Ocean Colour Team. Without saying, hey, let's be professional. We were just like, well, we're still playing with Paul. And I never fell out with Steve, never have done, never will do. Because I completely admire him. And we, we were we were bezies. Um, we're, we're not now, obviously. But um, it was kind of weird, but we got used to it. And then I did, we did that for another three years before I stopped, work, stopped working with Paul. And then Paul was actually really chuffed that either I wasn't going to leave the band or Steve wasn't going to leave the band because of what had happened in another band. You know, and he was, he was actually really thankful about it. But yeah, the first sort of few hours were, were pretty strange, to be honest with you. Also, particularly when the band's manager would turn up with, and then occasionally one, of the, one or both of the other two would turn up to a Weller gig. That was fucking weird. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, and, and I was just like, do you know what? I could make a thing about this or I could just be the bigger man and just leave the, you know, the green room at the gig or, you know, the after show room or whatever. So that's what I did. I just made myself scarce. I'm like, fuck this. You know, yeah, I'm not going to have another argument with anybody about yeah. something. Uh, has time kind of healed any of those wounds? Do you still, have you not spoken to the lad since? Or? <laughs> um, you, occasionally I, I, I'm in contact with Steve. Um, I don't know if I will be after that most recent interview <laughs> I did, <laughs> but I was really nice to him, so we'll see how that pans out, but I'm more than welcome to speak to him. Simon and Oscar, I've not spoken to since I left the band. Okay. You know, But I'm really proud of what we did, and there's a book that came out recently called Behind the Scene, which um, an old mate of mine, the photographer Tony Briggs, did, and he sent a, it's a beautiful coffee table book. It's like it's it's gorgeous, and he sent a couple of copies through, and I I wasn't really that interested in looking through it until my kids said, "Oh come on, Dad, let's have a look through it," and they were like, "Oh my God, you were really cool! Wow, look at you then!" and all that. And I was going through it, and I was like, "Actually, this is this is pretty awesome, actually." And um, the guy will do my all, the guy who I, who I do on my music production with at our studio. He said, "Did you get two copies?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Bring one up to the studio so we could put it on one of the tables in the lounge so when bands come in they can because they, they always ask loads of questions, yeah. about, you know, blah blah." So we got a copy in the lounge at the at the studio. And that. So yeah, I think that was a, a, a another lo another long answer where I could have said, <laughs> "No, it's brilliant." One of them, not the other two. Great, <laughs> right. and but like kept yourself busy and you played with the the Who and Live. Eh? What was yeah. that like? That was insane. I literally, so the gig was on the Saturday. I get a call from Steve White on the Thursday, and he said, "What are you doing tomorrow and Saturday?" And I said, "Well, nothing much apart from some gardening." But clearly, you want me to do something with you. He said, "Yeah, we've got a little gig to do with it with a couple of fellas. We're going to rehearse tomorrow, and then we've got a gig in Hyde Park on Saturday." And I still didn't twig. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, cool." And he's like, "Come on, mate. You know who it is, don't you?" I said, "I've no idea." He said, "You know, Live Eight." I said, "What's that?" <laughs> no, I don't. He said, "For fucks, <laughs> the world is watching." Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. We've, you and me have been asked to, to pretend to be um, the, the the who with the who. Um, so, okay, shit. What songs we're going to do? Don't know. 
Jeez. Shit. Because <laughs> John Edmiston's <laughs> bass lines are quite good. <laughs> and we eventually, that night, get... No, um, yeah, that night we get um, an email through. It was 2005, did we have emails then? Or maybe a call. I, I eventually get told, we're probably going to do XYZ songs, so can you learn them for tomorrow? I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. Because I heard one playing with The Who, I immediately went to the pub in my village. <laughs> had a couple of couple, couple pints too many. And then I'm like, oh, fuck, I've got to work out, won't get fooled again and get myself to London tomorrow for a rehearsal. So, Damon, I, how would you do that? Like, how, how would you learn it? Like, obviously, you know the cards were here, but what's your process there? Do you, do you take the album off the shelf, spin around, play along? Or what do you do? Um, with something, oh, well, something that quick, you just go, I just need to work out the important bits. And that's all I'd ever do anyway. If I'm playing someone else's song, I will never play it like them because that's pointless. Yeah. There's a reason why you've been asked because they like the way you do your thing. But as due respect to the song and whoever played the bass part, the really important bits like on Won't Get Fooled Again, that run that dang, 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 all that kind of run that you'd have to learn that. Everything else, I'm like, I just learned the chords because it's also easy to remember. Because if you just learn a whole bunch of chords, it's like A minor to B flat, whatever it might be. You can remember that and you do your own bass around it. And you also know that Steve White won't play the drums the same as Keith Moon. So yeah. when they made that record, that bass goes with that drums. But when you play it diff with different people, it's going to have a different, uh, I was going to say a different frisson. Well, it does. <laughs> it has a different mo movement. So you paint a br very, very broad picture. And if there's any minute details, like, you know, if you had to recreate Mona Lisa really quickly, You'd concentrate on the smile, the rest of it, you just go like, so you'd get the gob right, everything else, you'd do your own version. So that's I think that sums me up. I get the gob right, everything <laughs> else, I just do it. Yeah, we rehearsed for an hour the day before. Jeez. One was, hour. Was it something like you said, we can't fuck this up? Yeah. I said to, as Steve White said to me before we went on stage, if we fuck this up, our careers are over. And then we walked out on stage, not only to quarter of a million in Hyde Park, but um, it was one fourteenth of the world's population watched it on the TV. I remember watching. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's insane. insane. <laughs> but I tell you what, it was the best cold beer I've ever had in my life when I came off stage. And I'm not really a beer drinker, I'm a wine drinker. And the dressing room, there was a crate of cold beers just for me and Steve White. Did, did you I not mean, have a few beers before the gig, no? No. Normally I would, but I was like, me and Steve didn't even, still didn't know the songs. <laughs> yeah. If you got a bit squiffy, you tend to jam it out, but we had to be right on it. But when we'd done it and it went so well, that little pop of those two. Yeah, exactly. Heart so enjoying that beer afterwards. Like, I know oh, it's, now I'm getting the, you know, whoa. Someone's got a picture of me and Steve White grinning like Cheshire cats, each with a bottle of like probably shit lager. <laughs> yeah. Shoved in our gobs like, come <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, that that. But another funny story. I phoned my mum the next morning to say, "Did you video it?" And she went, "Video what, Mise?" <laughs> <laughs> so I had to wait for the Who to eventually get a DVD together, send it to me. You know, but I just heard people said, "Oh, that was that was amazing." I'm like, I have no idea. Was Brilliant. it? Yeah. Brilliant. That, that, that was an, another strange moment in my life. Who lost their feet or hands Don't want to fight no more But there's no profit in peace, boys We gotta fight some more
you've also played with like Jimmy Page, Dr. John, uh, Paolo Nutini, Amy Winehouse, just to name yeah. a few. But one we yeah. didn't really know about was the beautiful South. What's the connection <laughs> with the beautiful South? That came through Weller. So I wasn't playing with Weller at that time because OCS were really busy. So I think it was around the time he was rehearsing for a heavy soul tour or something, which is the one that me and Steve Craddock didn't do. But I'd gone down just to see Paul and Steve White just hang out. And the Beautiful South were recording in the studio next door. And their producer, whose name escapes me, came in and said to Paul, will you play uh, Wurlitzer on this track called um, Perfect Ten? And he was like, only if my mate Damon comes and plays bass on it. Right. And the producer's like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so we go in and I play the bass on Perfect Ten. But the fucking Beatles House bass player is sitting at the back of the studio on the sofa. And I'm like so fucking embarrassed and apologetic because it's like, that's so unfair. Yeah. But you know, when you're in that situation, because I could have said, oh, well, I'm not doing it. And then Weller would have said, well, I'm not fucking playing on it then. Yeah. Then no one wins. But after I'd done it, I said to the bass player, I'm so sorry. And tried to explain how this had happened. And, uh, you know, being a bit of a, a brusque northern chap, he um, gave me short shrift. And, so, so that's... there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Do, do, do. Yeah, so that, that's <laughs> actually what was the producer John Williams? I can't remember. I literally can't because he, he. I know he done a lot of the uh, the yeah, beautiful South ones. Paul Heaton's uh, Paul Heaton's last couple of solo albums as well, mm -hmm. and he done also some of the House Martins as well. Didn't yeah, he? yeah. It probably, but well, it probably would have been then. But uh, yeah, it was one of those moments where you're like, this is really, this is really. That's probably my most awkward moment as a musician. But, but you speaking know, of like, awkward moments, yeah. Damon, right? We're sitting here talking about. Your, your career right? and, and such an eclectic, wide, famous career, massive highs of the 90s, even through it at all. I mean, you've played with literal legends of uh -huh. the music industry. How did it not? I mean, you seem fairly level headed, right? And yeah. even of the story you're telling, but how did it not go to your head? I mean, you hear stories of of mass success and, and people really, you know, becoming asses. Um. I would put that down to my, my upbringing, to be honest with you. Because my dad worked his, I was going to say his tits off. Well, <laughs> he probably did. He, he, he worked so hard to provide for um, my family, like serious, like serious working class attitude. And he was always so lovely and so humble and measured with everything, even when he had success and he eventually getting promoted from shitty positions in car firms to be, you know, being like sort of middle management and then getting promoted to this. And then we got bigger houses. That was down to his hard work, but he was always incredibly kind and humble. And I, I think I probably inherited, I would like to say half of that. I think people who don't like me would say none of it, but <laughs> I would say I inherited probably 25% of that attitude. And, but he also had an amazing sense of humor in any situation to not take it too seriously. So I think that's what I maintained was like, I'm just me. It's actually quite funny that we're doing this, you know, these amazing things like, you know, I'm on stage with The Who or, you know, I'm having a jam with Paul McCartney. You know, and a lot of people would go, oh, well, that means I'm fucking awesome. Why don't I act like a complete bastard? <laughs> um, whereas a lot of musicians I know do end up falling into that trap, but, the, but I never did. So I'd put that down to my upbringing. Brilliant. And also being a fucking cool dude. <laughs> you can edit that bit out. Probably keep that in. Yeah, keep that in, Mark. What, what, 
geared you towards academia? I mean, we know you've got your PhD in music and you're a lecturer, but what, what was the initial crux of, what was the catalyst that pushed you towards academia? Oh, I've got, I mean, the, the listeners can't see it, but I've got an appalling, I mean, I don't know if you can, if it'll come oh, out yeah. there anymore. I've got this massive scar on my wrist where I um, severed all my tendons in a, in, in a um, interface with a, a front door window. I was sober, by the way. Uh, I smashed through my tendons and I, hand surgeons were touch and go when I'd ever play again, but I literally wasn't allowed to play for six months while my um, tendons were rebuilt, which is a bit of a bummer when you, you know, you play the guitar for a living. Um, and it was literally two days after my accident, I got invited to go and do a lecture about music down in Bristol. So I did it and they were like, God, you're really good. Do you want a job? And I was like, well, I can't play the guitar for six months. So yeah, I'll do some lecturing. So I started lecturing about music and it was an incredible way of doing it because I would be talking about music and sometimes doing bass lessons without being able to pick up a guitar. So I'd have to explain it, which gave me a weird in, insight into what I actually do if I'm not, don't just do it, like yeah. physically. So you try and describe what it is to make music and perform and all this kind of stuff and you know how chord progressions work and all this sort of technical stuff, which you'd normally show people. And then when I got the go ahead to play again, I thought, I'm actually still enjoying this. I'm going to carry on the two. And the more I did it, the, m the more stuff I read in music academia that I thought, this is utter bullshit. <laughs> These music academics, very intelligent people, have never made a record. They don't know what they're talking about. It got to the point my wife was like, will you just stop complaining and become a doctor and write your own books about it? And I was like, all right then. Same thing, sense of humour. I'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, and then ended up, well, ended up like five years of fucking hard work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doctor of music. <laughs> do, do you find it rewarding? Uh, well, I hardly do it anymore, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, Sorry, did you find it rewarding? I did. I, I did find it rewarding. But then, strange, not strangely, like as soon as it word, word got round, like everyone's waiting with bated breath. That's not what I mean. And then I started getting asked to play on records again, um, and then. Through that, then I got called, you know, I got called from Richard, oh, do you want to come and rehearse? I'm thinking about doing a new album. So I started doing that. And then I got, ended up getting management, which a really good friend of mine called John Dawkins from various artists management, who manages, the company manages um, the Libertines and Ash and Eco and loads of big people. And John manages um, Tom Gren and he, and he was like, get back into music producing, mate, I'll, I'll manage you. So for the last two years, I've been a music producer. So I literally, with playing with Ashcroft and being making producer records with the people, I, I literally have not much time to be a music academic. You said you showed us the scar, and you, you talked about your bad injury there. And after taking so much off, was yeah. there any change to how you played? Like, were you, were you still able to kind of? Uh, I can't play as fast as I used to, but I take that as a blessing because no one really likes a show-off bass player. Age as well, Damon. Let's <laughs> exactly. put it down to age. I, I, the way I put it, I can say with I, I mean, you look like you're still in your 30s. We're sitting here with our grey hair and you have jet black uh, quiff on you there. I would say, I, I would like to think I can say with one note what um, some function band player will say with eight. Okay. <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, and quite frankly, I can't play the other seven because my, my tenders won't let me. <laughs> When you were lecturing and a student approached you, uh, uh, you know, want to be bass player and asked you, well, one bit of advice, get them on the path, what would you say to them? Oh, believe in yourself at all times. Because my thing with music is, if you truly believe in it, if it is the most important thing in your life, 
if it is that say your metaphoric house is on fire and you could only pick up one thing like one box and all these little boxes and it's like you know one's films one's football one's whatever and you go for the music box and run out of the house with that and let everything else burn then do that if you hesitate you'll never make it brilliant and there's no there's no saying you will make it but also i'd also say to them be yourself you know be influenced by people because everyone is but the people who are really good they sound like themselves yeah so don't copy people learn from them and be yourself and also work fucking hard so i obviously said a lot to this hypothetical student and i probably have over the years <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do do, I do do on and off lecturing at university in Cardiff, which I really enjoy actually. But uh, yeah, it's kind of weird to spend all those years to become a doctor of music and then literally just go back into making music anyway. But yeah, you always have that title. Oh God, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And Damien, you're a great raconteur and great amount of stories. I'm sure we're only scratching the surface. Mm. Have you ever been ever thought about getting them on paper, writing a book? Oh God. Yeah, no chance. <laughs> really? I, yeah, yeah, absolutely not. I would lose so many. Fr- I mean, I haven't. I, got I have to be honest. After this last hour of chatting, Aaron, a bit, I, that really surprises me. Do you know what? I don't know. I always say no when people ask me, but there's always a little bit inside me, which is the little devil on my shoulder, going, "Go on, do it, do it, do it." Do it. Dish that shit. <laughs> do you know what? I, things. If I did it, oh, typical me being me, I'd have to be so hundred percent honest. Nobody so, would be talking to you literally no one would be my friend in the music industry apart from a select few people who would come out of it so nice because it's because they are yeah um so i would say for the preservation of most people's sanity and um their relationships with their better halves i would say absolutely not damon can i just ask you obviously you know i might do (laughs) but obviously you know you know nice people in music yeah do the arseholes not know that they're arseholes and then are they shocked when people call them arseholes I don't think they do. And I also think it's insecurity as well. It's like you take um, Rich Ashcock, man. He, I work, I, uh, if I didn't like Richard, I wouldn't work with him. It just happens to be he's one of the most loveliest, coolest people on the planet. But he's, the reason why I work with him, he's incredibly talented. Gigs are wonderful. We make records. They're absolutely fantastic. He is such a joy to be around because he is not an arsehole. I, I now, honestly, he I, could quite easily be... And, and justifiably be a complete arsehole because yeah. he's written one of the biggest albums the world has ever seen. Like Urban Hymns has sold 27 million hard copies. Mm-hmm. You he know. just took on the chin when the Stones took his, uh, his money. Yeah, sure. uh, well, yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he, now he's, he's kind of got it back. But I think it's people who are comfortable in their own skin don't act as arseholes. The ones who have never lost that imposter syndrome are the ones who act okay. as arseholes. That, that, that would be my reading of it. I could sit and listen to Richard Ashcroft. On the, I still think that is, is uh, I think it's Alone with Everybody, his solo yeah, album, yeah. the first solo album. Every, there's very few albums. Yeah. Well, it's mostly shows, of course. Of but course. there's very few albums that every single song is a stomper. There's no filler, you know. There's, yeah. And what he can do with just... You know, a couple of chords. He yeah. can make a guitar. You know, he's doing some acoustic stuff. He can just make it come alive with some simple chords. I say simple chords if you, if you don't know them, but just yeah. Well, what's what's amazing about Richard as well? He gets better with age as well, as a performer and as a singer. I mean, I've played with some of the world's greatest singers, living and dead, and he's the best. 
He is the best singer I've ever stood on stage with. Easily, no one comes close to him. I mean, all the other ones are, are fantastic, but there's something in the way he delivers these words. And I think it's also because he means them and they're important to him. That's why there's certain other songs he won't sing. Yeah. You know, and he just, the way he delivers them, it's like, it's spiritual to me, you know. Without getting too mushy about it. I love him. <laughs> and he's a dude as well. And, uh, you know, even though he's a fucking Man United fan, so he can fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> but Damon, we could talk to you on, though. I mean, myself and Kieran are music fans. And as Kieran mentioned, you're obviously a natural raconteur, right? <laughs> uh, so before we wrap up. Yes. Damon, it's last orders at the bar. Yes. You have a pound in your pocket. There's a jukebox in the corner. And it's literally last orders. Yes. What's the last song Damon Minchella ever wants to hear? Okay, so I'm going to paraphrase this really quickly. If I had three quid in my pocket, which I know I'm not <laughs> but if I did, pound number three, it would be Sway by Dean Martin, which is the world's greatest vocal ever recorded, ever, ever, ever. But I'm not allowed to play it because I've, I've only got two quid now. Yeah. So pound number two, it would be Just a Gigolo by Louis Prima because it would be funny, the song I go out on. I'm not going to play it because it's just a bit controversial. So the one pound I've got in my pocket, put it in the slot. It's in there. It is New Day Rising by Husker Du. Very good. Very well, good. New Day Rising by Husker Du is Husker the song Do. that we are going to play this interview out on. Yeah. Uh, Damon, right? Uh, from myself, from Kieran, Mark, our editor, from the whole Let Chrissy Take a Team. This has been a pleasure. It must me. be my pleasure. <laughs>